Good Bone Health makes active aging possible. Join us for inspiring conversations from diverse perspectives in osteoporosis, from patients, healthcare providers, caregivers, policymakers, researchers, advocates, and innovators. Protect your ability to live your best life. The information and opinions expressed in Bone Talk are not intended to replace the services of trained and qualified health professionals or to be a substitute for medical advice of physicians. You may review the National Osteoporosis Foundation's full medical disclaimer at nof.org. Hello, everyone. This is Liz Thompson, the CEO at the National Osteoporosis Foundation. I'm absolutely delighted today to introduce Dr. Joshua Hirsch. He's the Director of Interventional Neuroradiology, Chief of the Interventional Spine Service, Vice Chair of Interventional Radiology Quality and Safety and Associate Departmental Quality Chair at Mass General Harvard Medical School. He has extensive experience in diagnosis, management, and treatment of cerebrovascular disease, minimally invasive spine surgery, and acute stroke treatment. He's published over 450 papers, 40 chapters, and edited multiple books in the peer-reviewed literature. He's the founding editor of the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery and is a past president of both the American Society of Spine Radiology and the Society of Neurointerventional Surgery. He's been elected to the board of the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians, the Society for Injectable Osteoarticular Biomaterial, and the American Society of Neuroradiology. He's chair of a committee for academicians at the American College of Radiology. And this is another fun fact about Dr. Hirsch. At just 21 years old, he was the youngest person in modern history to graduate from his medical school. Yes, he is the original Dr. Doogie Hauser. With that, we're gonna kick off our questions today. Dr. Hirsch, we're so excited to have a conversation with you today and to learn more about vertebral compression fractures and the importance of early diagnosis. Let's start by understanding a little bit more about you and your motivation to treat people who are affected with osteoporosis and vertebral fractures. Well, Liz, first let me start by thanking you for reaching out to my mother in order to get the material for those introductions. I really have flattered to have been described in that way. And it's really terrific to be a part of this podcast, which by design will hopefully inform uh, patients, family members, and others about really what I consider to be a very unfortunate problem that is under-recognized, under-diagnosed, and under-treated. And that's, of course, the silent killer osteoporosis. So you asked me my motivation it, it really is straightforward. I went into neurointerventional radiology, the then nascent field, with an eye on treating stroke, aneurysm, things of that sort. This was in the 90s, and our tools were relatively primitive at that time, but we were developing a field. I was sort of in the second generation of people that were getting involved in that space. We were minimally invasive neuro doctors. And there was a, a group in Virginia that had begun to experiment with a European technique, really a French technique, involving the placement of cement 
into fractured bones. Here in the United States, that experience really centered around the osteoporotic spine. In the late 90s, myself up here in New England, I became excited about this technique. So it had started being applied in Virginia probably in about 93, 94. And then in the later 90s, we began to apply it up here in New England. And you asked about motivation. It was the remarkable improvement in patients that we saw right in front of our eyes. So previously, patients were hospitalized for one to two weeks on average with an osteoporotic compression fracture, something people thought of as a throwaway lesion, a benign lesion that, you know, if you just gave it enough time, would get better. Of course, the people affected by this lesion are elderly, are vulnerable, and asking them to take months to get better has different implications than a 35-year-old super healthy, active person. This elderly person would be in the hospital for several weeks. We started treating patients and they would leave the next day. It was really almost miraculous. I don't want to impute miracles for those that don't believe in them, but even if one does not wish to believe in miracles, this was truly a remarkable thing. And it affected me tremendously because I knew from early on I wanted to be a part of trying to move this science forward, help patients get treated both for their osteoporosis, which at the time was dramatically undertreated, and then for this horrible scourge of osteoporosis, the compression fracture, which again was called benign. And I think given the population and some natural prejudices towards the elderly that people don't even realize they have, plus the fact that there was really little to do, we would say to people, don't worry, these will get better over time. And this was a way to fix that fracture in the moment and get people back to their pre-morbid state of health really quickly. So my motivation was and is advancing that field because I think there is great opportunity to help patients with these treatments. Dr. Hirsch, thanks so much for being the kind of physician who really wasn't happy with status quo to truly make a difference for patients. We can hear in your voice that commitment, but also your passion for change. Can you go back and help us understand what exactly a vertebral compression fracture is and tell us about whether they're common? Earlier in your comments, you spoke about them as a lesion. Help us understand exactly what they are, what we're talking about today. Great question. And since lesion can be associated, Liz, with lots of things, including bad things, I'm glad you brought that up. It's just a common word to say something is wrong. Hopefully, remember, especially talking to myself, to not use that word again. I simply mean something wrong. Osteoporosis is this amazing problem in the United States and worldwide. Uh, depending on the ethnic group, there are definite predilections for the bones softening over time. It's said that really by the time we hit 30, everything is going to go downhill. I haven't found that to be completely true in my personal experience, but I would say that with regard to bone health, it probably is true. We form bone up until between the ages of 25 and 30, and then over time, lose a little bit of bone strength each year. 
because women face the change of life, which accelerates bone loss, it is more typical for us to think of severe osteoporosis in elderly women. Though it is said, if we lived long enough, everybody would fight osteoporosis. There are tremendous medications available for osteoporosis, but I know this from personal experience because someone very close to me was affected by uh, advertisements that she saw on television regarding some of the challenges of osteoporosis medications. Between that and the fact that this is a disease that people often can't see or feel in its early stages or moderate stages, this unfortunate fact is that many patients are just undertreated for osteoporosis, which is something we have worked aggressively on since becoming involved in the treatment of these compression fractures. As the bones become weak, they soften. I like to think of it as Swiss cheese type appearance. That's what normal bone looks like. And the osteoporotic bone is just the holes inside the Swiss cheese taking over the remainder of the normal bone, which is the cheesy part. If you think about that, as the holes become more and more prominent, the bone is structurally weaker. And at a certain point, it will collapse. And that is what we classically think of when we think of a wedge compression fracture in the thoracolumbar spine. So think of it as a abnormal bone that's suffering from osteoporosis, so it's weak. And then a limited stress, a normal stress can result in the bone being broken. Because this is being differentiated in many articles and publications from cancer, it's called a benign compression fracture. But this is a misnomer. It's not benign to the person who can't lift up the laundry basket or walk to the car or sit still for 15 minutes because of pain. It's not benign if you need to go on opioids. It's not benign in many ways other than not having cancer. Liz, sadly, because there is so much challenge getting people educated about what osteoporosis is, and there is so much confusion because of the widespread discussion about the challenges of some of the osteoporosis medications, people in this country are under-medicated with respect to osteoporosis, and therefore we see many, many, many vertebral compression fractures. I've heard it estimated that there are between 800,000 and a million incident compression fractures a year. That means new compression fractures a year. So probably somewhere around 800,000 plus benign, meaning osteoporotic type vertebral fractures a year. And I would say that that not only means they're common, but for those that are suffering from painful compression fractures, they're dominant and really quite discouraging. That is simply jaw-dropping. 800,000 to a million people in our country alone are impacted by that. And yet it seems like they go undiagnosed and really unknown. How would you describe your typical osteoporotic patient with back pain due to fractures? So that's a great question. And I'm going to probably broaden the answer a drop because I'm a specialty doctor that gets a lot of referrals for people with painful compression fractures. So if I could more broadly answer, what I would say is that people with compression fractures from osteoporosis are on a continuum list. Some of them have very, very mild fractures and perhaps are not suffering from pain. Some people 
have fractures that if they limit their activities are not suffering from pain. Some people have fractures if they limit their activities and start taking non-narcotic medications are able to not have significant pain. Some people have fractures and require narcotic medications or unable to do their activities. Some people are admitted to the hospital. I think I'm trying to paint the picture that the clinical manifestations of the vertebral compression fracture really run a very large gamut. I will say though, and I use this word carefully, that I do think there is bias in the evaluation, meaning the population affected by these types of fractures often skews to the elderly or what we have called extreme geriatric. I think in one of the articles that we wrote looking at a subset of our population, I mean, believe it or not, Liz, I've treated people over 100 years old with these types of problems. So what I would say is that therein lay part of the problem and also solutions that we'll talk about later in this podcast. It can be hard to diagnose vertebral compression fractures. And depending on what the person is manifesting, it would likely be appropriate for different patients to get different treatment options. The patients that are sent to me tend to be symptomatic from their compression fractures. While we started this practice at a different institution, I've been uh, continuously at uh, the hospital I currently work at since 2003. So we're fairly well known for this treatment and people are directed to us from both within the hospital community and outside. But I would say that those reaching us tend to be symptomatic. If people are symptomatic, we look at how the fracture is impacting their life, whether they require medications, what types of medications they have. And again, depending on what we see on the imaging, we'll counsel them either to consider conservative therapy or if we believe they'll benefit from intervention, the possibility of intervening with vertebroplasty or kyphoplasty. In our group, that would largely consist of counseling symptomatic patients between those two different choices. So for the question you ask, my typical patient is symptomatic. They're struggling. That's how they reach me on a consultative basis. But more broadly, I would say that it can be hard for these patients to be diagnosed because they're often, again, elderly and maybe a little less active to begin with. They may have aches and pains to start, and then they have this superimposed pain. They're not really sure why. They're not sure whether they should go to the doctor or which doctor to go to. And that leads to, I think, a lot of different ways that these types of patients may interface with a continuum of care. Thank you. And we do understand that as a specialist at a high-level medical center, you see a subset of patients. What would happen if someone is at home, one of these very senior people is at home and just says, I can't take the pain anymore, and they admit to the emergency room? What might their experience be there? I will not get myself in trouble with any ER colleagues by commenting on experience (laughs) in the emergency room, but I will say that it's tough at any age to have to visit the emergency room, and particularly if you're 90 years old and in pain. I would say that it is something that is variable because different people have different levels of experience uh, dealing with 
vertebral compression fractures. And it is important to remember that some of the early radiographic signs can be very difficult to interpret. So if a person, let's say, has severe osteoporosis, tried to reach for something on a shelf, broke a bone in their back, thought they heard a pop, were trying to do their best for 48 or 72 hours at home, but just couldn't function. They went from their normal, you know, I have kind of some pain in my back because I've lived a long time and have arthritis in there to, wow, I can't get out of bed. I have nine out of 10 pain. They know something's wrong. They're not exactly sure what it is. Believe it or not, the x-ray that is probably done most commonly in, in many emergency rooms may very well be normal. You may not see the broken bone. It may only be apparent on more sensitive imaging tests like MRI. And these are not tests that are necessarily universally available in emergency rooms. Depending on the part of the country, depending on the symptoms, depending on the person's social situation and, and really the culture of the hospital, there may be an effort to send that patient back home with near-term follow-up, Liz, or they may be admitted to the hospital. ER medicine is really common these days, so it's just something more broadly, I would say, that would be very dependent on the patient, on the situation. But I guess what I would highlight is the fact that it can be hard to diagnose these fractures in the emergency room. And I think very surprising to a lot of the listenership, an x-ray may totally miss the diagnosis when on a more advanced test, seeing an early fracture would be easy and obvious and almost like cheating on a test. It's so clearly there. Thank you for sharing that. I think some of our listeners may know that last October, my dad fell and was at home for three days with excruciating back pain, is a very stoic person, so wasn't complaining. But my mom noticed he just wasn't moving the way that he normally did. And she kept after him about, are you in pain after your fall? Are you in pain? And finally, he said, you know, I think we're going to have to go to the hospital. When they presented at the emergency room, he had the experience that you just shared. He did have an x-ray. They didn't find anything. And then because, of course, I'm the CEO at the National Osteoporosis Foundation, my mother called me from the emergency room to say, is there any other test that they could run? He is really in misery. And this is not really been his background or the kinds of pain that he normally has. I think that what you're highlighting for us as an advocacy organization is two things. One, patients and their caregivers have to be advocates for themselves. And this isn't that physicians are bad or not providing the quality of care that they want to, but it may be that everybody, as you said earlier, isn't familiar with this kind of break. And so when you do have pain, you have to stay on top of it and really communicate that may not be that that you need another answer that you want to keep going with further tests. Liz, thanks for sharing that personal story. I would also use it to highlight another point that was made sort of in passing. I mean, if we think about what the generation of people that are getting to the point of being 85, 90 live through, it's not surprising that many of them are stoic and, you know, may assume that it's okay to have this type of unexpected, terrible pain for a short period and not know why. The 
person who is with the patient, be it their husband or their wife or their children or their friends, are often critical for me in forming an opinion about how much this is impacting a person's life. Because that stoic generation may say, you know, it isn't bothering me very much. And then let's say it's a 85-year-old woman saying that her husband might come back and say, before that, three weeks ago, we were walking two and a half miles a day, and now you're afraid to walk from the living room to the dining room. And I've heard these conversations many, many times. I do think that pain is subjective. While it is true that only the person knows themselves what pain they're feeling, the people around them, the people who observe changes in their behavior, which may not even be apparent to the person themselves, are critical in making the diagnosis or at least understanding the implications of the diagnosis. This is, I think, in many ways, less critical in the emergency room subset where people have reached the point where they're in the emergency room or in patients in the hospital and more for patients who come for outpatient consultation. They're able to live on the outside with this broken bone in their back, but they've potentially limited themselves quite a bit in order to be able to get to a tolerable level of pain. And that can extend over a surprisingly long period of time. It brings up another point, Liz, which is, you know, what if I want to tough it out? Is there a risk in this type of fracture being underdiagnosed or undiagnosed even? If I could, I, I would go ahead and just share that I think that is a real risk. We can see the patient in front of us and see the person potentially suffering. Again, this is for the subset that have painful compression fractures, significant pain, uh, compression fractures potentially where there's acute angulation occurring at the spine or, or people who are in one way or another manifesting symptoms or having uh, other challenges that are being unrecognized. A couple of years back, working on a study with some superstar colleagues, we looked at the compression fracture population in the CMS, which means Medicare fee-for-service database. So this is in excess, I think, of 30 million patients. And we found a very substantial mortality difference, and I repeat, mortality difference between people who were treated with cement augmentation kyphoplasty and those who are not uh, treated that way. So either conservative therapy or, for other reasons, unrecognized or no therapy. And I think that relates to a lot of reasons. Many of the reasons include the challenges of conservative therapy, which these days for pain too often means starting patients on opiates. So beyond the understandable desire to tough it out, I myself hate to go to doctors and I come from a family where each one of us is more stubborn than the next one comes to their own <laughs> personal health care. I know it's it's kind of funny and, and hard to believe, but really true. The story I alluded to earlier was my own mother taking herself off a bisphosphonate without even asking anybody that might have had an opinion about whether that was wise to do or not, just because of some commercials she saw on TV. I would say that mortality data was in line with most other studies looking at claims-based data when it came to questions of mortality. And then the implications of underdiagnosis really strike home. If investigators can acknowledge that there's a signal that comes from that mortality data, then we ought to be concerned about people with painful compression fractures not having an opportunity to consider this type of treatment. So 
I do think in answering my own question that I posed to myself, there are real risks inherent to under or failure to diagnose. Thank you for that. As you just characterized for our listeners, you have long been a champion in finding out root causes, analyzing something like 30 million patients in the Medicare database to really understand what that means. But equally important, you've been a champion in educating your physician colleagues about how to really create systems in our healthcare environment that can make a difference. Tell our listener about the vertebral fracture care pathway published in Spine in 2018 and what's significant about this care pathway, how we think it can really be used to change the trajectory for patients. So I really appreciate you asking that question. I want to clarify one quick thing. Um, The CMS database contains about 30 million people per year. The fee-for-service database, we use the 100% sample. Just for the scientists that are listening, we studied uh, 2 million compression fractures over a period of time. The whole sample was the 100% sample, which is the 30 million plus. We looked at 2 million fractures plus over a 10-year period. So, Liz, one of the, the things that really strikes the people that are involved in the care of these patients is the complexity of the fact that they can enter into the treatment continuum in so many ways. For example, they may find themselves in their family doctor's office. They may be talking to an emergency room clinician. They could be in a specialist's office. There could be so many different ways that they would potentially enter into, think of it as treatment continuum for osteoporosis and or the compression fractures. That presents a challenge, but also, I think, an opportunity, because if we could get somebody who may not be thinking about, gosh, it's really critical that this person get on osteoporosis medication, if we can help define a pathway for them to get there, this would be a tremendous benefit to the really large assortment of patients that are presenting in all these different ways, emergency rooms, family doctor's office, maybe even to a physical therapist or a specialist surgeon or proceduralist pain doctor, et cetera. So we brought together using a a really well-worked-out approach called the UCLA RAND approach, multidisciplinary specialists. We brought them together in order to think through what would be optimized approaches to managing vertebral compression fracture patients. And again, using this well-worked-out UCLA RAND approach, we did a very, very rigorous review of the literature created hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of scenarios, and then compared how each of the specialists would look at this patient and manage them. And from that, came up with a consensus on the best way to optimally manage these osteoporotic patients. And as you'd expect, many of the patients are referred for conservative therapy. Some, we believe, go down a pathway where they need further imaging. Others are evaluated based on the level of decline they're experiencing. So again, I I don't exactly remember how many scenarios. I want to say there were somewhere in the range of 500 scenarios. Really, almost every scenario you can conceive of was put to our multidisciplinary panel of experts, each of whom had to know how to do the procedure and experience with the treatment of compression fractures. We would put it to them and came up with 
guidelines or what is more properly, I guess, called a clinical care pathway, the beauty of which is that if a person comes to the family practitioner, they can be inputted into this clinical care pathway. If they interface with a specialist first, they can be inputted at different points on the clinical care pathway, bringing them to an evidence-based synthesized approach that can optimally manage their compression fracture, and I would argue even perhaps more importantly, the underlying disease that got them there, osteoporosis, where there are so many treatments that are available if patients will be given access to them. So with that, what I would say is that study was, I would like to think, very well received. We've received tremendous feedback, and many, many different physician groups and hospitals are working on trying to implement that even at the level of their electronic medical records, so that when a patient comes in, instead of trying to figure out what the right thing to do is by going to the literature or looking at a, a guideline, we have this uh, clinical care pathway ready to go. And I think that's going to go a long way to optimizing these patients' care. Thank you for sharing that with us. At the NOF, we've launched the National Bone Health Policy Institute. And we believe that these innovative models of care, these care pathways that are developed by physicians for physicians are exactly the kind of models that are going to help us drive better osteoporotic care and increase better outcomes for our patients over the long run. We'll be furthering them as much as we can through our work with the Policy Institute, and we look forward to engaging with you and your colleagues as we move through our work with the Policy Institute. For now, we're thankful that you're taking this leadership and developing that and really figuring out how it can be applied in all of those different settings. And again, as you highlighted, using the backbone of, excuse my pun, with emergent medical records so that we can track that and really understand quality measures as they move through it as well. Couple last questions. You kind of have answered this next question throughout your description, but one more time. How do you approach diagnosis and treatment for osteoporosis patients suspected with vertebral compression fracture in your clinic? So for me, the, the patients have already typically been diagnosed. So the question I'm trying to answer is how symptomatic are they? Where are they in terms of the healing? And what do their fractures look like? So for us, I'll typically rely on advanced imaging and correlate what I see on most typically an MRI with history and physical exam. And based on what we see, we will counsel patients about whether we think procedures will be helpful. I'm very proud of the fact that dating back to when we started doing this in the 90s, again, this was two institutions ago, uh, we set up a multidisciplinary clinic of our own. And I really appreciate the institution that allowed us to do this, wherein an endocrinologist was part of our clinic or part of this multidisciplinary clinic, I cannot reinforce how critical it is that we think of the compression fracture as a battle in the war on osteoporosis. And that partnership continues in different ways to this day. There are patients that are sometimes managed by their primary care doctors. There are patients that 
we refer to endocrine or rheumatology, it is really important to us that patients get optimized uh, osteoporosis management. By the time they're having compression fractures, their uh, osteoporosis is often quite serious and they may need very serious medications. And Liz, your outreach work is so important because you'd be both surprised and disappointed with the number of people that are not properly treated at this time. And I think that whereas it's easy to be disappointed, you also, uh, as an organization, see that opportunity to help the patients get on proper care pathways for that underlying osteoporosis. The sooner that they start on that, the better. And, and therefore, again, we make that part of the discussion that we have whenever we're consulting for vertebral compression fractures. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. I want to pull out another thing that is really been clear as we've had our conversation today, and that's the consultative way that you talk with your patients, not at them or to them, but that you together create a care plan for healthy aging, for better health and stronger bones. That's really come through in our conversation today. As we come to the end of our time together, we know there are probably patients outside your door ready to meet with you. You've shared such great information with us today, some of which might be brand new for our listener. What would be the top two or three things that our listeners should take away from this conversation for their awareness and understanding of vertebral compression fractures and the clinical care pathway? Well, first of all, before I answer that question, I want to thank you, Liz, for inviting me and hosting this podcast. And I think that any time spent is good time because, yes, it's true that outside my door there may be one patient, but the potential uh, listenership of this podcast is so great. And if we're able to impact on more people to get the right therapy, boy, that's a really good use of my time and I think really what I consider one of my missions in life. I would say that as we started at a personal level, treating uh, the vulnerable patients that suffer from vertebral compression fractures has become arguably the most important thing I do professionally. And I really appreciate the opportunity to share with this group and for the broad listenership. And so thank you for that opportunity. What I would say is that I'll speak colloquially. These have classically been thought of, these compression fractures in the elderly, as benign. And I would remind people that benign compression fractures referred to the fact that patients didn't have cancer. To the individual patient, they may be very much the opposite of benign. When you take a person who is aged or otherwise unhealthy and has therefore osteoporosis to the point that they have compression fractures and you advise them, limit your activities, don't do the things you normally like to do, take medication, including unfortunately until recently uh, often a push towards opiate medication, these are not benign considerations when we think about the implications. So the first thing that I would say is if you're a person that might be at risk for osteoporosis, make sure to talk to your uh, primary care provider about that. It is something that can be readily, easily tested for. And as I said, there are many therapies, including entry-level therapies, that hopefully keep you away from having 
a painful compression fracture and needing my services, which if we were optimally functioning and I never had to offer one of these treatments again, I'd be perfectly happy. Unfortunately, there are still going to be people who are either undertreated, untreated, or even with treatment probably will have compression fractures. If you have that kind of unexpected pain or pain equivalent, which is a little too much for me to go into, but symptoms that are reminiscent of a compression fracture, try to get to your provider and ask them about this pain and ask them, is it possible that you have a compression fracture? Be aware that compression fractures can be hard to diagnose. And for that reason, we've put together this really unique clinical care pathway that I'm very pleased was published in a major peer-reviewed journal. We brought together specialists from multiple different backgrounds to agree on the best way forward for optimizing the care for patients suffering from compression fractures. That does not mean you'll need one of the treatments that I do. In fact, again, in the clinical care pathway, there are people we recommend get conservative therapy, but I will at least be reassured that you're going to be going down a road where your osteoporosis is properly managed. Remember that if you see a loved one suffering from pain, that is not normal just because they've gotten a little older. And even if they're stoic, it is something you probably want to think about seeing a provider for because there are treatments that can take people from being in really terrific pain and making them feel back like the normal proud self they were before the compression fracture. As I said, there have been large claims-based studies that suggest there are benefits that go well beyond improving the pain. And I think those are benefits that the medical community are going to appreciate more and more. So there is hope when one has a compression fracture. There is desire to get optimized treatment for the osteoporosis. And I think with that, I'll probably say thank you, Liz. Dr. Hirsch, thank you for sharing your vast knowledge to help our listener better understand this important topic. We have resource links to NOF resources, as well as more information in the podcast show notes, which our listeners can find at www.nof.org under the podcast and blog tab. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bone Talk. We heard Dr. Hirsch's story and his passion for helping us be aware of vertebral compression fractures and the importance of diagnosing and treating it early. But we also want to hear your stories too. Please visit us at www.nof.org and go to share your story and tell us what's happening in your world. The more we stay connected, the stronger we will be. For more information about how to keep your bones strong and healthy for life, please visit nof.org regularly for up-to-the-minute information. Did you enjoy this episode? Possibly learn something new and helpful? If so, please do two things. One, subscribe to Bone Talk so you never miss an episode. And two, please share it with all your friends and family. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch, and we look forward to seeing you shortly. Thank you, Liz. Thank you for joining Bone Talk, the National Osteoporosis Foundation's podcast that shares information, strategies, and inspiration about good bone health that makes active aging possible. 
To learn more about Bone Health, to become involved and or help fuel NOF's mission with financial support, visit nof.org.